0: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us
1: or you're with the terrorists. If you've got healthcare care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it.
2: Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank.
0: Together, we will make America great again we shall
3: never surrender surrender. it's what you've been waiting for all day buck sexton with america now join the conversation call buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK that's 844-900-2825 sharp mind strong voice buck sexton
4: Gospel performance there at the Texas Convention Center from last night. Uh, The soloist there was Victoria White, who was singing to evacuees, people who have lost everything because of the flooding in Houston. Flooding that continues. We will have updates for you on what's going on, not just in Houston, but in the surrounding areas. Some other cities have now felt the wrath of this storm system Two, uh, buck sexton with america now here with you all team thank you so much for joining eight four four nine hundred buck eight four four nine hundred two eight two five a third of houston it's estimated right now is underwater uh it has broken this storm harvey has broken the record for rainfall 52 inches in some parts of houston as i said yesterday that's more than seattle has ever received in its rainiest year so to call this a an absolute deluge is no exaggeration in fact it's probably an understatement uh, there is considerable uh, danger still out there people are awaiting rescue uh, rescue services are doing everything that they can and there are a lot of Heartwarming and encouraging stories of neighbor helping neighbor. I saw a photo earlier today of a long line of Houstonians who had queued up, not looking for uh, assistance themselves, bread, water, food stuff, medicine. They were lined up because they wanted to volunteer to help others. They wanted to get into this fight against the storm, so to speak, and do everything that they could. Uh, this is ongoing, and we know that there have been a couple of uh, cities that are uh, added now into the uh, onto the list of areas where there's really serious flooding. There are um, there is continued flooding in uh, Port Arthur, uh, and there are some areas to the east of Houston that have really caught uh, the brunt of this over the last. 24 hours or so. Beaumont and Port Arthur in Far East, Texas. Uh, There are still people who are in their attics uh, hoping to get out of there. In fact, I'm seeing specifically public service announcements say to avoid attics, better to go up on the roof. You don't want to get stuck in an attic if you don't have an egress route, if the uh, floodwaters go even higher. Um, President Trump was speaking today about uh, the first responders and the continued danger going on here's what he had to say
0: as we all know our gulf coast was hit over the weekend with a devastating hurricane of historic proportion torrential rains and terrible flooding continue to pose a grave danger to life and to property our first responders have been doing absolutely heroic work to shepherd people out of harm's way And their courage and devotion has saved countless lives. In Port
4: Arthur, which has about uh, 50,000 people, it's east of Houston, uh, 90 miles east of Houston, they had to evacuate one of the shelters that had been set up at the uh, Bob Bowers Civic Center uh, because the floodwaters were uh, rising up so quickly that they became a threat to the shelter for people. So that's how Rapidly, the situation on the ground changes in some areas of Houston and, uh, and and eastern Texas, southeastern Texas, the floodwaters recede and then they get higher again. Uh, this is a situation that is in constant flux, and that means that some of the dangers persist, even when there is a sense that uh, things may be getting slightly better. The bottom line here is that we're not through the worst of it yet. The country is still watching as Houston uh, is battening down the hatches in every sense and trying to uh, prevent greater loss of life. Uh, This may well be the most expensive and most destructive flooding event in u.s history um it's not clear yet what the full damage is there's so much that's unknown uh, and until the waters recede no one will really have any sense of uh the true cost in fact fema uh, federal emergency management agency uh, gave a press conference today and they made sure to hit upon that point and others here's what they said about the cost of the disaster as far as we know right now for
5: but I think it's very important to recognize that the cost of this disaster, the economic cost to measure the disaster versus our physical cost as the federal government family, we're not going to know a true cost for that for many, many years to come as we you know work together to understand what the communities are entitled to from public assistance or HUD community development block grants or the reimbursement costs. It takes a lot of time to understand the true cost of this disaster, but it's going to be a huge one.
4: That is for sure. Uh, This is it is rough. And I know it it has uh, expanded to include cities in southeastern Houston. I mentioned Beaumont, Port Arthur, and also it's it's hit Louisiana. Uh, I know we have uh, listeners uh, from that part, that part of the country who who call in. I hope uh, everyone listening and and all your loved ones and friends are are safe and uh, hopefully away from the worst of this storm system. Um, But it it has continued it has continued on for days. When you look at the uh, weather maps on TV, it just seems merciless that this could continue in this way, that this storm system that has already dumped so much water and with it so much destruction and misery on Houston and a a radius of 100 miles around Houston at this point, uh, that there that this could continue on. And this this record setting rainstorm, uh, that they were not able to predict this ahead of time, I think is a discussion that we will want to have more in the future. How could they, weather uh, is something that they can predict with a degree of accuracy, but not, not complete accuracy. Um, but preparations for this, I wonder how much more could have been done in terms of preparation. FEMA was saying that, bottom line here is that this is unprecedented. Fine.
6: Right now, uh, we're focusing on this specific disaster and ensuring we have the appropriate funding and, and programs in place. Many of these communities, including Texas, has made uh, extraordinary progress in its planning for disasters. Uh, this particular storm was unprecedented in terms of volume of rain, um, and, and that's what we're focusing on now.
4: This was beyond uh, th- th- this was beyond anything that anybody could have reasonably been uh, expected to be ready for i think uh, meaning to be able to ha- have it all thought out beforehand i mean there were preparations made the city did have that does have drainage it, 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 the s- authorities in houston are aware that it's it's flat and there's uh, major problems with drainage and it has had flooding in the past because of hurricanes and it, but but this is just this has been uh, too much and to see the response from Houstonians and people all across the country, whether showing up in Houston to assist or sending money or just uh, trying to give as much emotional support as they can to the people of uh, Southeast Texas and Louisiana, it is uh, it is inspiring, it is reassuring, but these are, uh, these are tough times for a, a big part of the country and for many of our fellow Americans. So uh, we are going to get into some of the... Uh, specifics of what's going on there we will talk about the ongoing political conversation that surrounds this because like everything there is no tragedy there is no horrific event that is beyond the petty politicization of the media you are seeing an abundance of really nasty and indefensible stuff from the left on harvey uh i i I don't know. You're not seeing it. For, I haven't seen it on both sides. I'm seeing it on one side, and, and that's, I think, uh, indicative of a, of a broader mentality right now that we'll get into. Trump gave a speech today on uh, taxes. He talked about the, the hurricane and the efforts first, but he gave a speech today on taxes. I will want to talk to you about that, and then uh, later on we'll have a discussion about a whole slew of other issues that I'll get to. So uh, for now, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Any of you who are in southeastern Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, any of the uh, areas affected by this by this rainstorm, um, please do let us know what's going on. If you have a loved one in the area that has thoughts uh, or, or anything to share, uh, we'd be uh, honored and appreciate hearing it here.
5: The operation right now is very clear. We're still in uh, life-saving, life-sustaining mode. Not only are we, you know, performing uh, through through our partners at the Coast Guard, we're performing those life safety measures, but the life sustainment mission is huge. It's going to grow. We have over 230 shelters operating in Texas with over 30,000 people, but I don't want to get fixated on numbers because those numbers are going to change in the next 30 minutes. But just to let the people of Texas know that we are supporting the efforts to provide mass care, not only mass care, but also medical care to those who have been displaced. And we understand that this is going to be a frustrating and painful process, but we're trying to do everything we can to alleviate this situation.
4: That's FEMA at the press conference saying they're in life-saving, life-sustaining mode. What does that mean and what can we expect in the days ahead. We have Rich Serino on the line. He's a former deputy administrator of FEMA and chief of Boston EMS. He's now a distinguished visiting fellow at Harvard University's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Rich, thank you so much for calling in.
2: Oh, great. Thank you. Glad I could join you.
4: Rich, uh, people are saying forecasters are putting out there, media analysts, that this could be the worst natural disaster uh, in in U.S. history. What are you seeing and what do you think about what's going on?
2: Well, it it certainly is a a tremendous disaster and it's heartbreaking to see, uh, you know, people that are losing their homes. But on the other side, it's also wonderful to see how neighbors are helping neighbors, uh, rescuing people with boats, pulling people out of cars that get trapped, uh, helping people, Uh, giving them, you know, sometimes literally clothes off their back because everybody out they're so soaked and wet. So seeing neighbors, helping neighbors, uh, bringing together that that community uh, brings out the best uh, in this country in the worst of time.
4: What are the the primary, Rich, if I can ask you, what are the primary urgent challenges right now? I, I know it's saving people's lives which means getting them out of of areas that are that are flooded where they where they could drown uh but is it is it the biggest problem for fema and also all first responders law enforcement national guard everybody here is it finding the people getting to the people i mean what are some of the hurdles that they have right now to make sure that they have the the lowest casualty number possible from this storm
2: Well, right now, as mentioned, this Administrator Brock Long, who uh, was just speaking, mentioned. um, It's really about life safety. It's getting people who are currently trapped. And the first responders on the ground uh, are the ones that are doing that, the urban search and rescue teams that are coming in from all over the country to help out the folks in Texas. Those are the people that are saving the lives. But uh, as I mentioned, seeing the neighbors help people save lives because if if you know somebody or a neighbor that you haven't seen in a while, make sure you check on them. Uh, people, you know, there were people who were trapped in their attics today. So if you haven't seen or heard from somebody, in, in either check on them yourselves or I'll let people know so people can go check on them. Uh, it 's essential to so at this point to really save lives and the life sustaining that was talked about that 's when people uh need to get to the shelters and once they 're in the shelters, making sure they have enough food, enough water, blankets clothes uh getting people over the next few days because most people left with literally their clothes and their wet clothes at that on their back
4: rich i know we 're still uh, we 're still in the midst of this storm and also the efforts to save people are ongoing, but how would you gauge either the pluses and minuses or whatever you see here of the response to this storm thus far from from local and, and federal authorities?
2: One thing that I have seen that has been impressive is to see the uh, leadership across, seeing you know how the, the governor of Texas has worked with the county judges as well as uh, working with the emergency manager's uh, chief, Nimkid, the state emergency management director in Texas, has been doing a great job in constant communications uh, with the emergency managers throughout Texas and with uh, FEMA. So, getting the federal, the state, locals together. These are very complex emergencies. These are not simple ones to deal with, and no one agency can do it alone. That's why we need to have this community of effort of people coming together. Uh, and being clear what the mission is. Initially, it, was, it still is saving lives. And as we move forward, we're going to look at how we can uh, bring together other different agencies. We have the public sector, uh, which I mentioned, but also with the private sector, the nonprofits, the faith-based community, and the public themselves, the whole community able to come together. Uh, and we've seen the, the generosity, the spirit of people just working together, the volunteers that are going down, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, Team Rubicon, uh, veterans groups that are going down, and many other countless groups that, are, that need the help. And the private sector, such as Airbnb, opening up uh, for free people for places to go. People can get help uh, there, go and stay at homes for free. That that's seeing all the the good in people that that are able to help each other out during these times. And that's what we're going to need. That's what we're going to need to do to continue
4: to do this we're uh, uh, speaking life. to uh, rich serino he's a former deputy administrator of fema uh, rich one more one more for you once the the imminent threat uh, the imminent threat to life from the flooding becomes much less of an issue essentially as the flood waters certainly stop and are receding what are the next phases for fema for disaster management at the federal and local level what are the what are the next most important things that they have to do
2: uh, and one of the most important things is making sure all the people have shelter. And once the people have shelter, and then how do we get to out of the big shelters into whether it be at hotels or rental properties, and then also looking at the long-term housing issues—is how to get people uh, a back in their homes after the end to get those homes, as we say, initially mucked out and then to be rebuilt. Uh, so people can move back into their homes. But that is going to take months and, in some cases, years. So housing is going to be an issue that comes up in the uh, medium term once we get people people into shelters and then from shelters into the next stage of housing.
4: Rich Serino is a former deputy administrator of FEMA. He's currently a visiting fellow at Harvard University's National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Rich, appreciate your expertise today, sir. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. Uh, team phones are open 844 900 buck 844 900 2825. Going to talk a bit more about what's going on in Houston. We should be having uh, a friend of mine calling in here from Houston to let us know about how uh, people are getting involved to help and how some of you listening can help if you choose to. And that's assuming we can get them on the line. Things down there are uh, in flux, uh, to put it mildly. There's a lot happening and people. Have a, have a lot on their uh, on their hands and uh, yeah, on their minds. Um, we will get to uh, your calls. I can see some lines lit. We'll get to them in a minute. We will get into taxes in the uh, second hour of the show, and then third hour, talk to you a bit about intellectual freedom and also the lack thereof. Intellectual freedom on campus and the destruction of intellectual freedom by antifa and yes, by major corporations. This Is going to be that'll be an interesting third hour discussion. I think you want to hang out for that one for sure. So, a varied and worthwhile show. He's holding the line for America. Buck
3: Sexton is back.
4: Welcome, team. Um, I have Jesse Kelly on the line now. He is a Marine Corps combat veteran and former congressional candidate. He is coming to us from Houston, uh, and he's also written a piece for the Federals about how to help in Houston. Jesse, great to have you.
7: Buck, how you doing, brother?
4: I'm all right, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, to the first, man, just tell me, what are you seeing? What is going on down there? What's it like to be down there in all this?
7: It has been absolutely horrific and awesome at the same time for the past few days. The devastation is beyond belief. People have lasted, lost it all. People crying, people desperate, but acts of heroism like you can't even imagine, and people coming together. Nothing petty, just Americans helping Americans, and it's been awesome to see, man.
4: Well, that's that's certainly the, the, the bright side of all of this, and, and I'm, I'm wondering, uh, uh, the volunteerism that has been on display based on what I've seen in social media, you know, what are they asking from Houstonians who aren't in the, you know, because it's only about a third of the city that's really under, and it is underwater. I mean, some of the photos of what, I think I saw a highway yesterday, it looked like uh, somebody was looking over the, uh, you know, the Atlantic Ocean or something. It was crazy, the photos that are out there. Uh, What are the ways that they're asking people to help? I know you wrote about this for The Federalist.
7: We we need really three major things right now. If you're in the Houston area, call the individual shelters. I have those in my bio line, a link to them at at Jesse Kelly DC on Twitter. Call the shelters and see if they need volunteers for one, which most of them do. They're always short on those. And what specifically they need for supplies. If you're out of town and you want to help, honestly, what people need more than anything else right now is money and that article I linked to it's my pin tweet at Jesse Kelly DC I put four links that I trust there are a bunch of charities out there but I wanted to be real careful about the scammers so four links that I trust send money five bucks 5000 whatever you can do everything helps they they really need it right now Father uh, uh, really have you
4: already seen like evidence of people trying to, trying to scam folks who are, are trying to pitch in and help here cuz it's just I mean I I'm somebody who usually is is uh, you know, in favor of sentencing reform, but when they said yesterday in Texas that looters were going to get a whole lot more time in prison, I was like, heck yeah.
7: Yes, uh, we've, we've seen some looting, uh, and obviously that's as disgusting as it gets. I, I hope they loot the homes of gun, of gun owners when the gun owners are there, but for the most part, it's been a real small percentage. It's going to get all the headlines when horrible people do horrible things. But really, 99% of Texans have been awesome. And there have been scammers. There'll be more scammers when it comes to money. I know Linda Sarsour, whatever her name is, tried to scam everyone this morning and get to give money to a left-wing political pack. But for the most part, people have been terrific. I'm telling you, 99% of it has been awesome.
4: What is it, just from, if you, if you can bring us into your view of what you've seen down there, I mean, you've been down there for the entirety of the storm, correct?
7: Yes, sir. I'm actually. We've been in the heart of it. My my city had over fifty inches of rain. I'm in Friendswood, a suburb south of Houston, and I had rescue boats a mile from my house picking people up. Blackhawk helicopters pulling people off of roofs. We've been surrounded by it.
4: Oh my gosh! I mean, I, I well, I, I, I assume I'm sure you're you're quite familiar with the sound of a Blackhawk overhead, but I, I'm guessing you never thought you'd be hearing those in your in your suburban neighborhood of Houston.
7: No, and it was—it really has been surreal, Buck. It's been so dark and pouring rain, and everywhere you go, you're boxed in. You can't drive long distances if you drive at all. A mile here, a mile there, and roads are completely washed out. Tiny little creeks that are normally three feet wide are all of a sudden 100 feet wide and spilling out over the roadways. It is devastation like I've never seen. I've been through several hurricanes, some typhoons. I've been through some bad things. I have never seen anything like this in my life. Dude. The, the area is just not, no area is equipped to handle this much water. You can't handle the water down here. It's, it's we're, been too much.
4: We're <laughs> speaking to Jesse yeah. Kelly. He's a Marine Corps combat veteran and a former congressional candidate. Uh, Jesse... What is the supply situation like down there? I, I know that we, we had somebody calling yesterday telling us about how she had made her way to a store and, and people are able to get to stores in some parts of, of Houston and the, and the surrounding area of the city, but there are other places where you're, you're totally boxed in. I mean, how is the supply situation going on the ground?
7: It's better than you think. They actually need everyone. There's still a need everywhere for it. But, again, it's another one of those things everybody is pulling together down here. Like our local grocery store, H-E-B, the second the roads opened up for them to do it, they pulled in a skeleton crew and opened up the store so people could resupply. And they need everything down here, diapers, canned foods, uh, feminine products, which people never think of, hand sanitizer, air mattresses, pillows. They need it all. And they've been – people (laughs) have been amazing. We put up a couple articles and people have overwhelmed our local churches and shelters and charities with stuff. They could always use more, but the supply is, is good. It's, it's the monetary damage right now that's really going to hurt people because so many didn't have flood insurance because they weren't in areas that have ever flooded. Well, now we have this, the thousand-year storm, and now they're flooded out.
4: I've heard from some folks that flood insurance, even if you have it, is is not all some might think it would be in terms of what you're actually going to get out of it. Is that, is that your impression? Is that true?
7: I continue to hear that from people who have lived through other hurricanes that they got the flood insurance and then the insurance company will try to scam people out of it and claim it was just wind that did it. I have heard it's not all it's cracked up to be, but
0: yeah, clearly not. better
4: than nothing. But I've heard twenty or thirty cents on the dollar is what you can expect for a lot of a lot of insurance companies, at least as a, as a first go. At this, uh, Senator Ted Cruz said the following. I just want to put this out there and, and uh, let everyone hear it, and then I want Jesse's take on other ways and other places to go to help.
3: What I would suggest to folks, if, if you want to help out, uh, is to go to the websites of either the Red Cross or the Salvation Army. Both are coordinating massive relief efforts, and they can give you opportunities to volunteer, uh, whether you're in the Houston area where there are shelters all around, but there are also shelters in Austin and San Antonio and dallas they also can list items that 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 they need and that varies shelter by shelter in terms mm-hmm. of the donations that are needed and of course financial contributions to help purchase what's needed uh, all of those are ways to help uh, as an immediate step
4: jesse that that pretty much uh, that, that covers a pretty good swath of what's possible for those of us who are in other parts of the country right i mean anything you wanted to add to that or any other specifics
7: no. For people around the country, that really checks off most of the boxes. You have more options if you're local and you can physically do things. Like, I know they need blood. They need more people to give blood. Like I said, they need volunteers. Yesterday, what was happening is basically our law enforcement, our first responders, are starving. These are guys who are working 24, 30-hour shifts on a power bar. And some of their homes have been wiped out. So there was a big need for people to deliver hot meals to police stations and sheriff stations. Uh, but they're meeting those needs as they come along. For people out of town, yes, some supplies are needed, but monetary donations are king right now because we are talking untold amounts of money that, that are going to be needed to recover this place.
4: Jesse, have you seen some of those guys from the, uh, from the Cajun Navy? Just out of curiosity, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan.
7: Oh, you're daggone right. I have. They are the best. <laughs> they are the salt of the earth, guys. You can't go to the gas station and see some of the gas stations left their pumps on, even though they locked up inside. And those Cajun Navy guys are at every single gas station filling up their bass boats, filling up jet skis they brought over. All of them have LSU hats on, and they're just here to help. That's all they care about. They're here to help, and as soon as there's another problem somewhere else, they'll go back. They They are awesome people.
4: Oh, Jesse, man, I really appreciate you giving us uh, your view of what's going on in the ground there in, in Houston. Uh, tell you to continue to stay safe, but I know you're probably going to be out there knee deep, dragging, you know, dragging whatever you have to in terms of supplies to people and everything else that uh, that can be done out there. But uh, Jesse is a former Marine. Where can people go to read the resources that you have posted for everyone?
7: It's at my, on my Twitter page. It's the top tweet. It's the pinned tweet at Jesse Kelly DC at Jesse Kelly DC. Click on the article. I have links right in there. You can click on it, click on the links, and give whatever you want. It's easy and fast. Please give if you can.
4: Jesse, thank you for your service. Thank you for your call. Great to talk to you, brother, and we'll be in touch, all right?
7: Appreciate you, brother. Thanks, Buck.
4: Thank you. Buck Sexton back with you in the hut. We got Richard uh, in West Virginia on WWVA. Hey, Richard.
8: There are certain things that interest me about this situation down there. Man, all I can relate to is one time I had to move out of a river flood, and I put five feet of water inside the place I worked, and I think it was about a mile uh, long. So I'm just wondering, like that, if this situation didn't cover the entire area where they could... But you just wonder because I heard you say, and I've heard it before about the. Uh, highways being like
9: rivers
4: you have you looked if, you, if you're on social media richard you can see for yourself the photos are literally unbelievable in that they look like they are doctored or photoshopped you know it looks like a fake photo but they're real
8: well i believe you but what i was thinking when that happened
4: <laughs> no i know you believe me i'm just saying go ahead
8: if the people were on their roof they couldn't get out how were the first responders getting to them to rescue them are these are the ones from the have these big uh, Humvees or they're driving tanks or something that they could go through this water that was, uh, who knows how deep it was on there, four four, five, six feet deep. Is that what they had to get to them? Because they certainly couldn't use cars to get through there.
4: Yeah, I think they're using all kinds of vehicles. I've seen uh, everything from fishing boats to kayaks to uh, you know, flat-bottom boats. Uh, I, I don't even know. I'm not a watercraft guy, so I've I, jet skis. Uh, yeah, I've seen all kinds of stuff. Basically, if if it floats and it can give someone a lift out of a, a flooded home, it, they're they're using it. Uh, they're deploying it. So that's the, that. Means that there's a lot of improvisation going on.
8: And a lot of the, if they had, like the people can get out of their homes, you couldn't navigate the highway. Uh, how were Say like these centers that they were going to. People were staying in these centers. Uh, would they be up on a hill someplace? I mean, I don't know that you're going to know. Well, well only
4: person. as I said, only a third of Houston, for example, right now is under a large amount of water. So there are parts of Houston that have either drained or uh, to some degree, or or just didn't uh, didn't have the same level of, of collection, uh, you know, uh, level of water in them. And I, I'm, I'm assuming that some of the major uh, some of the major shelters that they're setting up, places like you know sports arenas, that uh, they uh, are are likely at, at an elevation where even four or five feet of water is not necessarily is not going to get in. You, you know what I mean? Whereas for a you know a person's house that's ground level, four or five feet of water, especially if it's a one level house, you don't have a I mean you don't have a house anymore for all intents and purposes. The whole thing's flooded.
8: Well, it must be because I heard Walmart was sending. Something like two or thousand uh, uh, kayaks down there, so maybe that's what the first responders are doing to to, to take these people to this show. Well, I don't know how they could. Yeah, no.
4: Look, I, I think that's true. I, I think they've been also trying to gather people, Richard, into different areas. And Richard, thanks for calling in, man. Shield Uh from West Virginia. Uh, they, they've been gathering people in different. Uh, collection points and then moving them you know it's it's step one and like i'm just surmising this from what i've been reading and watching and following as closely as i can and talking to people like jesse down in houston uh step one is get people out of imminent danger you know make sure no one drowns right so that's that is the overwhelming overriding priority here for houston and then uh step two is well once once they're out of imminent danger you know get them to a place where they can get Uh, shelter, food, uh, get them into a a place where they are able to take care of their basic needs. Uh, And as part of that process, I assume, based on what I've read about some of the buses that have been collecting uh, people, gathering people together, that there are some points where, if you know, the they people get they they know from the first responders, all right, we're going to have a a bus pick up, you know, fifty people here, a hundred people there, and take them to one of the established shelters. I, I assume that's what's going on. So there are multiple tiers or, or levels in this process until finally some individuals are, you know, given a cot and uh, you know a, a, a safe place to uh, to eat and sleep and and gather themselves. I, it's just traumatizing you know i mean uh, on top of all this the trauma of being under real threat and being uh, incapable of doing anything to to prevent this from happening right this is a natural disaster this is this is this is nobody's fault and yet it affects everybody in the path of the storm right there's nothing that anyone could do here other than just Adapt to the situation to the best of each individual's ability, but for all these folks out th- out uh, down there in Houston who are trying to make sure that they are, of course, they are safe, that their families are safe. The stress of that—I mean, I can't—I can't imagine what that's like um, being in charge of uh, your your spouse and and your kids and or you know your 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 grandparents or you know whomever, right? Uh, trying to keep them from. Being in harm's way through this whole process and knowing that for many people, you know, they're they've they've lost their home. They have to get past right away that financial that financial and psychological loss of all your things, you know, for a lot of for a lot of people, their things are gone. Uh, sure, they'll be able to sift through maybe afterwards when when thing when the waters recede, there may be yeah, some ability to recover items that but. From from what I understand, floodwater is, inc- first of all, it's, it's incredibly dirty, uh, and that's just because of all the stuff that it picks up, and it overrides sewer systems, and I mean, floodwater is, you don't want to be in it, you don't want to be near it. And one, once a home is flooded, and it, and, it, and it stays for days, this might even, this floodwaters flood might stay for weeks in some places here. It's never. It's it's really hard. It's never the same. I remember the Sandy uh, the Sandy cleanup efforts went on for, for it seemed like forever, in some places, uh, because floods are so damaging. Um, the the long term effects on many of these homes and many of these homes are are, are effectively gone. Uh, they won't be inhabitable for a very very long time. And I assume some of them have probably even been. Swept away in this depending on the size of the home and the structures stability. So this is uh, a lot coming together at once a lot for people to handle and I, I think these inspirational stories we're seeing about first responders and about individuals in these neighborhoods all across the Houston Metroplex and and beyond now into Port Arthur Beaumont that are just doing everything they can to help their neighbors that's you know th- those stories are important because that's what keeps everyone going because even those who have been pulled out of these floodwaters are likely having to grapple with the equivalent of their life savings being gone you know for a lot of, for a lot of people their their home that's where all their money is you know their home their possessions that's what they've been working countless hours over many years for and that may be gone and they may not have any insurance and they may be starting Completely anew um, and in, in a way where they are uh, carrying along some real psychological wounds from this whole process. So there, there's a lot, a lot happening right now. Uh, and I know that it's important to try and maintain a, as much as possible and in, in uh, a, a perception or a mindset. That's a better word, a mindset of positivity and taking action. And I think that's why the story's about the first responders and that's important. It's important for people in Houston to see. It's important for the whole country to see. Uh, this is going to be a long process. And uh, it's it's just one of those things that that happens and there's no good there's no good reason for any of this. There's no good answer for any of this. All we can do is band together and try to handle it as best we can as Americans and as people. Uh now we've spent this hour on on the reality on the on the serious issue of this uh, serious issues of this hurricane, this storm system. I do want to talk to you a little bit about some of the political shenanigans surrounding this from the left because it's just appalling. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back, Team Buck. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out in the Freedom Hut Buck section here with all of you. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Uh, Jamie in Florida listening in on the iHeart app. Hey, Jamie. Hi,
6: Buck. How
4: are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for calling. Uh,
6: I am a survivor of the four Florida hurricanes. We lost our home in the last one. Uh we spent a year living in a pop-up camper, a family of four with two dogs. We had to live in a pop-up camper. Uh, and the thing what people don't realize is yes, you have the initial shock and you have the initial wipeout, but this happened, the hurricane came through the day before my birthday, so I remember it. September 26th. The hurricane came through. And when we came home, we had nothing. And whole half of our house was gone. And it took us until December to get all the paperwork found, gathered up, tracked down, faxed in, faxed out to be able to get FEMA, to agree to help us. And then we started building after the first of the year, we started, we had to rebuild. And everybody in Florida was rebuilding. So, you know, supplies were few and far between. Thank God I was a truck driver, and my husband was disabled at home. He couldn't fetch and get and and find, and, and I'd see a flatbed going down the road going, where are you taking, you know, the roofing shingles? And I would say, okay, thank you, driver. And I'd send my husband. You got a flatbed less than thirty miles out. Get there and meet that truck and get shingles so that we can do our roof. And Florida had to bounce back, but it took a year just to get back in our home.
4: Jamie, you and said I that you said that you got some uh, at some point. You were able to contact FEMA. I'm just wondering what what, what was that response from them like what, what did they do to help if anything
6: well the first thing FEMA did was provide us with a generator because we were in a camper and they paid for us a, a generator but to prove that we had to go through the, the rigmarole of, of proving because we'd just been canceled on our insurance due to a robbery we had to get proof from our old insurance company that they had just dropped us during hurricane season and we weren't allowed to get new insurance. We had to get the paperwork to prove that fact. And, and then proof that our home was paid for from our mortgage company because we no longer had the title to our home. We, uh, we had to go through all these steps to prove that we were needed the FEMA. Then we had to get a clear title to our land and give up a deed where my land had never had a deed on it because my family were some of the original settlers of Polk County, so there'd never been a deed on our property. So
4: so you, you had to jump through a lot a lot of hoops after suffering that a tremendous took, loss here.
6: That took all our time, and thank God, you know, my husband was often able to do this and make countless phone calls and go to our bank and have paperwork facts And we learned then and there that, Every year when I get my insurance uh, thing for the year from my insurance company on what's covered and what's not, all my important papers I send to family outside of the state, and they hold them for a year so that if we're ever hit again and if we ever lose everything, someone outside of the state of Florida has paperwork, and they can send it back.
4: Jamie, if I can just ask you before we let you go, because um, you've been through this, to those in Houston right now who, who have lost their homes, and there are, there are going to be many, many thousands, likely tens of thousands of them, w- that first 24 hours, what's going through your head?
6: Well, first the first couple of weeks, you're numb. You're numb, and you're just trying to go through the basic things. My kids didn't have uniforms to wear to school. I mean, I literally was... You know, my kids didn't have clothes to wear to school, but they were still trying to go to school. And and it hit me on Christmas Eve because I had always baked for Christmas. It hit me on Christmas Eve that I couldn't cook, make cookies for my kids, and I had a nervous breakdown. And I called my mother in tears in Georgia, and she kept telling me, "She goes, okay, what's wrong?" And I I tell her I couldn't cook cookies. I can't make my kids. Tea- christmas and she goes "John, so the kids okay and i'd say yeah and it took her asking me over and over again "Are are your is your husband and your kids still okay then life goes on wow. and that is what i learned right then and there is the people are what's important the things can be rebuilt we built our out.
4: A powerful oh, lesson and, and, and very important words. Jamie, thank you so much for sharing your story from Florida. I appreciate it. And Shields, high to you and and your loved ones. Thank you. Uh, Jimmy in Mississippi, uh, good to have you on, sir. What's up?
9: Uh, I was listening to you talk to Richard from West Virginia, and he was trying to figure out how they got to everybody and how they got him back and all that. And uh, I was in the Baton Rouge what uh, whenever it happened about a year ago, whatever it was, and
4: uh, so you were in Baton Rouge during severe flooding.
9: I'm a yeah, I'm a truck driver, and just as the flood started, that big flood not long ago, uh, on the highway, and a wrecker, you know, picked me up and uh, took my truck to a shop and dropped me off at a motel. And when I woke up the next morning, it was like, it was going to be a while before my truck was going to be fixed because everything was underwater, <laughs> you know.
6: <laughs>
9: but uh, sitting there at the motel, I talked to one lady. She had her teenage granddaughter with her. And Megan showed up with a boat at her house, picked her up, took her to dry land. A lot of these people have TV radios.
6: Uh,
4: yeah. Jimmy, can you? I wanted you to finish your story, but we're, I'm having a really hard time hearing you, and the, the audio quality is rough. If you can call back in when you get a more secure connection, I, I want you to finish what you're saying, but for right now, I, I can't hear you, and that means i got to assume that most folks listening can't either. But uh, I appreciate you calling from Mississippi, and, and please get us with a, a better connection. I know this is the problem with cell phones is that, you know, they're cell phones. Um, as, a, as a wise man once said, the problem with cell phones is that they're cell phones. Um I said I would talk to you about the political side of all this, which I will do, and then I've got to talk Trump and taxes and the agenda too. I don't want to uh, get uh, too into what's going on here on the political side of all the, you know, the media journalism shenanigans that are happening right now. All the malarkey from journalists uh, that are trying to position themselves to capitalize for their own side on. What's happened here with uh, with Harvey and this this uh, terrible storm system that has uh, been so devastating to southeastern Texas? Do
5: you think he's? Proud of having it be, like, the biggest disaster? (laughs) I I genuinely don't know with him. I don't know if he's bragging about the scale of it. So for him, you know, the
6: accomplishment he sees in Harvey is that it's the biggest during the era of Donald Trump. Right. And so there's something really disturbing just about the way that he talks about it. I don't think that he understands the human scale of misery. I don't think that he can connect with the sort of compassion that you normally have
1: when you see a disaster like this.
4: There you have MSNBC host Joy Reid talking to... Uh, Incredibly unfunny comedian Trevor Noah from Comedy Central um, about Trump. Take just taking cheap shots at at President Trump over Harvey because he got on this right away. The emergency declaration went through right away at the federal level. They've been on this from the beginning. The left was so hoping to create some story about Trump not being on this, not being involved. And sure enough, Trump's been all over it from the beginning sure enough trump has so far from what we can see done all that he could do and he's done it right uh, at, at the federal level look this is an imperfect situation in terms of the response it always will be you're dealing with a catastrophe a natural disaster people will suffer terrible things are happening but the response has been robust it has been uh reasonably adept and they were hoping that it wouldn't be, which tells you a lot about the left, right? It tells you a lot about what they really think and what their what their main motivations are when they talk about all this. And to say that Trump can't understand the human scale of the misery, let me just say, nobody who hasn't themselves experienced this really understands the human scale of misery. This is like when I tell people, it's it's kind of like there, there are some of us who have uh, gone to bed at night, woken up in the morning, and done a job where we could get killed and that's just part of the job and there are people who haven't done that and those who have done it have a different have just a, a different perspective on certain things you know when when you show up when you're told as as I was told once you may not come back from this you might die just so you know and that was a professional level conversation that i had to have with somebody that they were telling me that that's different than people who have never been in that situation, right? That's different than people who have never really fit. I mean, look, you can you can get hit by a car walking out your front door to get some milk, but I'm talking about the perils of the job, the perils of your work. If you've never been in that position, you can't really understand it. If you've never been through a natural disaster, a catastrophe like this, of this level, with this much misery,
5: you don't really
4: know. You try. I mean, I'm trying to... Put myself to the degree I can in the mindset, but I've I've never been through anything like this. I've never lost my home. I've never been worried about drowning in the midst of a of rising floodwaters. I've never been worried about where my you know are my siblings safe? Are they okay? I mean, now I have had the process of wondering about a whether a family member was killed in a terrorist attack here in New York City. But that's a discussion for another time. That's not a natural disaster. That was a a man inflicted catastrophe with nine eleven. But again, I'm. I'm digressing. Um, So it's just a cheap shot. They're taking the press just a just a cheap shot, and there are lots of them. All the stuff about oh Melania's footwear. Oh she's wearing high heels. Oh she changed into sneakers. Really, really. That's what we're going to focus on the the dress code of the first lady. But it shows the the fixation to find some point of criticism, and they don't understand the media that that undermines. The rest of the arguments, you know, they they turn around, they look at people that support Trump. They say, "Why, why don't you believe this one?" And maybe they have, maybe they have a point. Maybe Trump said something that was a little, a little too much, went a little too far, was a little boorish, you know, shouldn't have done it. But Trump supporters are like, you know, what? We'll give him a pass on it. We're okay with it. Media never seems to understand that we remember, we remember that they were fixated on first lady melania trump's shoes in the midst of a massive natural disaster people are drowning and they have to oh look at her shoes and her shoes are there's who cares who cares and there's something else that i'm hoping we remember or that you remember um when they pretend like there's no way we can know what they really think of us i want you to if you haven't seen this and it's not that easy necessarily to find because they tried to erase it. They tried to delete it, but the Internet is forever. Politico, which is a left-wing political uh, magazine, and news site, put out a cartoon. And it's up on bucksexton.com I, I want to share the cartoon with you because it, it really does give you a window into a mindset. Here we are in the middle of a natural disaster of, as the president said, epic proportions Photos that make it look like a, a biblical disaster is in process, right? I mean, this is like Old Testament stuff. This is scary. And you would think that people who make a living sharing information and uh, writing narratives, telling stories, would know that some some degree of basic sensitivity, some degree of shared humanity is is really required right now. But well, this cartoon came out from Politico and I, I know I'm I'm on radio and I can only describe it to you. It is at BucksExton.com, though. We do have it up so you can see it. Because I screen captured it, because I knew by the way. I, I as soon as they shared this cartoon on their official Twitter account, I knew they were gonna be, uh uh-oh. <laughs> they're they're in for it now. And not because they made some mistake. I don't like playing the gotcha when somebody uh, just you know, just crosses the line or somebody is maybe thinks their joke is going to be interpreted one way and is interpreted another way i I think you give leeway to humor i do i'm a strong believer in that i also am a strong believer in second chances for people in the communications business who make a mistake i'll give that in mind you know because i'm (laughs) i practice what i preach on that one i think most people deserve a second chance especially if they made a good faith error there's a difference right a good faith error is not getting, you know, caught on tape like saying a whole bunch of racial slurs. That's a, like you're not working anymore. But a, you know, you, you make a joke that you think is funny goes a little too far, I think you get a second chance. I don't I don't think people should lose their livelihoods over mistakes that any one of us could on one day or another make. This cartoon is not one of those. This is not a mistake that a person could make. This is a, a window, an opening into the mindset of so many in the media. So we're in the midst of all this flooding in Houston, and Politico magazine puts out this cartoon, and it's, uh, it says, check out the latest from, and then it names the cartoonist, and you have a rescue helicopter over floodwaters. You have a rescuer who is putting a life jacket on a girl who's sitting on top of a house, And you have a guy in a Stetson hat with a Confederate flag T-shirt on and cowboy boots saying, and this is the bubble, the cartoon bubble next to him, angels sent by God about the rescuers. And, And they mean this in a sneering way, of course. He's also got a don't tread on me flag. So it's like Tea Party Confederate Texan being saved by you know, uh, U.S. federal rescuers of some kind. And then you've got one of those rescuers saying this is in the bubble or actually Coast Guard sent by the government. And on top of the house, there's a sign. The house of the people that remember have been flooded and are being and are being saved from possible death here. There's a, 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 a Texas state flag and secede written on it. You know, if, if you want to know what. The people who write for Politico and if you want to know what the people who are in charge of constructing the narrative, that is news. Don't ever get suckered into thinking that news is is an objective thing. News is what people make it. There's any number of ways, you know, you can leave any stories you want out. You can make most stories, whatever you want them to be. News is a narrative and. This tells us what the narrative from the left really is when it comes to people who are suffering in the midst of this flood. While people are losing their homes, while people are drowning, while Texans, Houstonians, and Louisianans are drowning and going through the terrors of losing everything that they own, Politico wants to make jokes about Tea Party, Texas racist secessionists. Because that's what they think that's what they think of Texans. You see, Texas Texas is a red state, even though there's a lot of people in Texas, including a lot of people in Houston who are Democrats, right? But they think of Texas as a red state. Texas is 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 a hick state. It is flyover country. If you live in DC, New York, if you live in the Salah Corridor, you live in Los Angeles, you take and you're a journalist, you take this sneering view of Texans. And that's not a surprise, but maybe what surprises some of us is they can't even put that sneering view on hold while Houston is submerged and people are drowning. They, they can't even they can't even take a break from looking down da- looking down from on above at us during Hurricane Harvey and everything that we're seeing here. Don't ever forget this. This is a major left wing news site, Politico. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Team, thanks for staying with me through the break, or thank you for joining. If you're just tuning in now, eight four four nine hundred buck We have every line lit, but as we take calls, spots will open up. I know a lot of people have thoughts that they want to share on the day's events. We'll get into some of Trump's tax talk today, uh, but I also want to talk to you about Antifa. I wrote a piece for TheHill.com on Antifa Uh, which you can read at thehill.com, and uh, I want to talk to you about that. So I have not enough show today for everything that I want to discuss with you. That's uh, no surprise. That tends to—not enough time in the show that tends to happen. But on bucksexson.com right now, we do have a a, uh, screen grab, the original cartoon that Politico— so look at it for yourself. I mean, I describe it to you in as much detail as I can. But look at that cartoon, given that it was put out today by Politico's official account— which means that multiple people saw this. This wasn't like one person who works for Politico who just, you know, tweeted something out and then was like, whoops, because, you know, that's... People can make mistakes. This was a cartoon. This person really thought this out. It wasn't an errant sentence. You've got to see this. I'm telling you, go to BuckSaxon.com. I have it up there right now. And they they deleted it, which how often does a major news site immediately delete a tweet? It is rare, because this is a this is a dumpster fire of awful this cartoon uh, it, you know it's it is wow you have to see it to to really understand it and like i said it's up on bucksexson.com uh let's take we got a lot of calls here let's take chuck in alabama on wbuv hey chuck hey buck how are you good good thanks for calling in you are a civil engineer
1: that's correct i'm a civil engineer and a biologist
4: Wow. All right. So talk to me about what the, what the, what's going on here from a civil engineering perspective with everything in Houston and all the flooding.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's unbelievable, and especially when you think that, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, city that I'm calling you from, Mobile, Alabama, is actually the rainiest city in the United States. A lot of people, and you mentioned Seattle earlier, a lot of people say Seattle's the rainiest city in the United States. And it is in, in terms of rain days. They have 150-some-odd rain days. But they're a measly 34, 35 inches a year. Mobile, Alabama, Pensacola, Florida, New Orleans, Louisiana are, are in the top three. And we get between the low 60s and the low 70s inches per year rainfall. So these people in Houston got within spitting distance of what we get in a year in two days. It's just, it's unbelievable.
4: And in terms of the infrastructure in place in Houston, I had read a little bit about how the the roads, they, they kind of have designed some areas, and I, this is just from my research that I was doing, so I don't know if it's true, I'm hoping you can shed some light on this, but they've been, they've set up the roads... To be a you know, once the rivers or the bayous, which is what they could Houston's a city of bayous, once they overflow, the roads become drainage points, and they've actually set up drainage alongside many of the roadways.
1: Well, that that's correct. You want to uh, you want to utilize uh, that sort of construction technique and 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 kind of get two for one get get drainage and get uh, get some sort of runoff. Uh, next to the roadway, it's, it just makes economic sense. But you know, there's just there's no way to design for something like this. I mean, it's it's so over the top, as you said earlier in the in the show, so biblical, in it's in its proportion that it's uh, it it's just unreal that uh, that that much water could fall in that limited area. In that short of a, a period of time, uh, again, a, a year's worth for us.
4: Yeah, it's 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 astonishing, and uh, it, it does put into perspective, I think, just what a challenge uh, this is for southeastern Texas, for Houston, for cities like Beaumont, Port Arthur, and, and I know it's it's hit up in Louisiana uh, too. Uh, Chuck, thank you very much for calling in on WBUV. WB, Appreciate it. Uh, we also have Ken in Mississippi on B on WBUV. Uh, hey, Ken, how you doing? Hey, Buck. Thank you for calling. What's on your mind?
10: Well, I was kind of inspired to call because I listened to the lady from Florida. Mm -hmm. And these people have a long road ahead of them. And we're talking about years and years. Uh, You know, you don't recover from something like this. You know, in one year, two year, yeah, you might can stabilize things in that period of time, but as far as really recovery as a city of Houston, and say like that Rock Rockport that got hit with the the storm and the and the waters, you know, it's going to take. It, it could take twenty five years. You know, I went through Katrina and Camille, and I'm telling you, Camille, we never really fully c- recovered. It was an economic uh, decision that kind of changed things that brought about recovery after 25 years. Now, I went through Katrina on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and a lot of people don't know, but Mississippi was the one that was really hit with Katrina, you know. And uh, I work in government, and in government, you know, I had to deal with it 24 hours a day, you know. And that that was very... It put me into depression, you know, because of the empathy for not only you know, I mean for other people and seeing their situation and everything. And plus, you know, we you know, we lost our history, you know, and so you kinda of look at it and you come home every day and you say, Gosh, I mean, you don't recognize anything, all the landmarks are gone, you know, you don't even know what street you're on and you grew up in this in this place. And it just looks so totally different. And so everything that you tied yourself to as far as your history, it was gone. And so, you know, it enters your mind. I mean, why am I here? You know, I mean, what's holding me here? What's, you know, why? Yeah, but you go through a stage, just like when you lose somebody close to you to death, and maybe it's the first time you experience death real close to you you have a process, a psychological process you go through? It's similar to that. And you actually go through a period, two or three week period there, where your brain is not functioning properly. I mean, you just can't think. And I don't know what they would call that phase, but I saw everybody go through that period. Now, they went through it at different times, depending upon how busy they were. But it's, it's a process. And I, I I have so much empathy for those people in Texas right now.
7: I hear you.
4: Thank you very much, Ken, for calling in and sharing your uh, your experience on this and, and your thoughts and, and insights. Appreciate it. Uh, Phil in New Hampshire, iHeart App. Hey, Phil.
3: Good evening, Buck. How are you?
4: Good evening, sir. Thank you. I'm good. <clears throat> uh,
3: congratulations on uh, Gorka. That was excellent. Uh, really, really good one.
4: Thank um, you. I like Dr. Gorka. We have fun talking to each other.
3: Man, you are moving up, brother, and I'm turning a lot of people on to you. Thank but, you. Uh,
4: I, I, I rely on real. that, uh, Phil, just so you know, for everyone listening, you telling your friends about the show, telling just one friend about the show, everyone out there, that's a game-changer for us, and that's why the game is changing here. We're getting bigger all the time. But thank you, Phil. Go ahead. Uh,
3: by all means, uh, I, I wanted to you know, break subject just a little bit here, and, and I, I had a thought this afternoon about uh, the little twerps and panty fuck. I think I made that up, but maybe I didn't. But the the little twerps and pantifa are, they might want to pay attention to the thousands and thousands and thousands of volunteers showing up with boats and gear and stuff and energy and willingness and readiness and preparedness and understand that these are probably almost 100% conservatives. And this is really, I have been watching a pretty fair amount at night before I go to bed. And I'm looking at this group of people showing up and showing some real heart. And I'm thinking, here's who you should fear left and Democrats, uh, DNC, Waters, Perez, the rest of you. You can fund and support Pantifa all you want. And the the trail will sooner or later come out. Maybe Project Veritas will turn it up. But it's like, look, when you wonder why you're not getting more opposition showing up at Berkeley and campuses and hiding behind police and acting only in groups. You might want to kind of take measure of the effort in Texas right now and understand that these sure as heck don't look or act like the kind of people who would be real sympathetic to the kind of stuff going on or the party that supports it. So, you know, not to get too dark about it, but I I called you a long time ago and said, the vet that you burned a flag in front of didn't forget you. He just let you go. And so I think these guys are pushing it. I, I got a bunch of friends up here who don't often say much and man, I think patience is running thin with the party that supports Pantifa and, and, you know, those little twerps, they can't get out of their groups and out of their urban environment. If they came this far North where I live, <laughs> it, it, it wouldn't last long. Um, People just don't like seeing the kind of stuff they pull. Yeah, I,
4: I don't know if you saw this, and, and I was uh, I should say that it, I wasn't able to verify it from an independent news source just yet, but I saw a video uh, put out there of some of these black-block anarchists that now call themselves Antifa, uh, where they were attacking a, a vet in a wheelchair. Um, I mean, they, they, they assaulted him. They, they poured out a, a can of uh, or a bottle of water on him and now i don't know this is one of these things where it could be wow. it could be old i don't have you know meaning it could be something that happened a while ago i don't know the specifics i just saw the clip before i came in today and i was trying to track it down uh, but that's the kind of thing i mean it reminds me how i felt after i saw people uh, burn who were of a similar mindset to antifa up at amherst burning flags and protesting at a meeting for community members at Amherst who had lost family members in the towers or in the Pentagon or in the planes on 9-11. And those little punks were burning flags and making political statements about the Native American genocide in front of them. And one of them was a friend of mine. and She was in tears. She had lost her sister. Uh... I have to say, you know, I am I'm, uh, I'm always opposed to violence in response to politics, but it doesn't mean it never crosses my mind. And when I see a veteran in a wheelchair being mistreated, I ha- I have some pretty uh some pretty dark thoughts about what I want to do to the person doing it. I'll just I'll just leave it out there. Phil in New Hampshire man, Shields I appreciate you calling in. Um I I think we'll, maybe we'll talk a little bit about, about Antifa. I wrote a, a piece up on the the thehill.com, which is a, a great site, by the way, especially if you're really interested in what's going on in D.C., but they do some they do uh, have a great opinion section, and they're doing some really good reporting. Um, but my piece is Antifa is not a political movement. It's a delusional, violent outburst. Uh, I know quite a bit about Antifa because it's a group that I was covering years ago. It's just the latest iteration of it. We'll talk about that and then... Give you my thoughts on Trump's tax speech, which will probably be a conversation that continues a little bit into tomorrow. Antifa has finally gotten some on the left, some prominent folks on the left, a little bit nervous. It's not because they disagree with the notion that there's a creeping fascism in this country because of Trump. No, no, no. It's because Antifa's antics have been so extreme, so unjustifiable, so outrageous, so illegal, so violent, that downplaying Antifa's bad side, that trying to focus on it, it's just a tiny little part of a much bigger and more important protest movement, has temporarily, probably just for a couple of days here, become untenable for some Democrats, notably Nancy Pelosi, who has come out with a statement condemning the violence of Antifa. When you've lost Pelosi on the left, you've definitely done something wrong, right? I mean, because Pelosi will... I, 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 respect, uh, I respect all protest movements. I mean, you know, Pelosi will find a way to be okay with anything that's politically advantageous to her as a private jet progressive um but antifa is exposed now in a way that the left cannot ignore uh so i wrote about this today for the hill.com i just wanted to share uh, one or two of the points i made in this op-ed and then um expand a bit on it before we go into the break and talk about trump's speech on taxes tax reform everybody woo! it's coming how big will it be i don't know How important will it be to you and me? I am. I'm a skeptic. I'll come out and tell you that right now. I am a skeptic on how much tax reform will uh, elevate the fortunes of those who are not already asset holders or people who benefit substantially from their roles in corporate America. Those who work for wages, I don't know how much the corporate tax rates really, I know we're supposed to believe that oh we'll be more competitive, higher wages and everything, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there. Back to Antifa and the Hill.com. So here's what I say about them. despite some media efforts to explain away the obvious, Antifa or Antifa or antifa, I don't know what the cool kids say, but I say Antifa. Antifa has always been entirely indefensible. It's not a political movement. It's a violent outburst, an expression of the progressive left's delusional emotionalism. Its primary mission is not the opposition of fascism, but the suppression of ideas. Words, more than anything else, seem to raise Antifa's ire. They don't rally against specific policies, for example, but they will swarm, menace, and shut down conservative speakers on college campuses. Antifa claims for itself the heckler's veto uh, veto under the cover of so-called Nazi punching, but it rarely, if ever, even attempts to punch actual Nazis. And so this lie is exposed for what it really is, an excuse to inflict violence on any ideological opponent at any time for any reason. All they have to do is throw around the term Nazi to smear a conservative And basic respect for the freedom and rights of others no longer applies. That's the whole game. That's the whole tactic. That's what Antifa does. They pretend that it's about Nazis, but it's just about everyone that they don't like. And they pretend that this is a movement intended to bring about identifiable and worthwhile change, when really it is just an expression of, as I put it, a delusional Emotionalism. These people think they're waging some, you know, some struggle against the creeping fascism of the Trump White House from the safety and comfort of, you know, their parents' basements most of the time. And so once in a while, they'll gather together and run around and throw things at police and act in this childish vandal fashion. That's what they do. They claim to be all about oppressed and minority rights. And then you see the individuals, the 13 individuals arrested and you know, in the Berkeley protest, which turned into a small scale riot. And you're wondering yourself, do they really care? How much time have any of these individuals spent in any marginalized or minority community? I'm guessing not very much at all, because it's not about those communities. It's about the people that are acting out. They get to feel like they are important, like they are worthwhile, like they are better than other people. And they're in the struggle. They're part of the resistance. Real resistance requires risks. Real resistance worthy of the name is about a cause that is righteous, and it is oftentimes not something that showers the person involved in, in, in glory and self-righteousness, right? I mean, a, a true cause, true resistance, is slow, it's difficult, and it requires patience. But that's not what Antifa's about at all. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the
3: buck never stops.
0: Calling on Congress to provide a level playing field for our workers and our companies to attract new companies and businesses to our shores and to put more money into the pockets of everyday hardworking people and also into the pockets of our companies so they can continue to grow and expand.
4: President Trump, after uh, speaking a bit today about relief efforts and expressing his uh, sympathies and uh, and and uh, well wishes to the people of of eastern Texas, Houston, and uh, Louisiana uh, for what they're going through. He talked about taxes. He's he's moving on to the agenda as well as pushing for uh, relief efforts in in Texas. I mean he's he's doing both, and the issue of taxes is certainly uh, an important one. Um, I have to say I am not. As enthusiastic as some others are about what we know so far with regard to this tax discussion, here's here's what we've been told, that this will be about simplification and the corporate tax code. Simplification and the corporate tax code. So we'll have an easier tax code, and we will also have a, uh, uh, well, as Trump says, a a better playing field. Here's what he said. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, He said that uh, he'll be bringing the business tax rate down to 15 percent.
0: We would like to bring our business tax rate down to 15 percent, which would make our tax rate lower than most countries, but still by no means the lowest, unfortunately, in the world.
4: So we do have a very high corporate tax rate. I think it's a good thing to bring the corporate tax rate down. Uh, So I'm supportive of that. And I also certainly think simplification is essential. I mean, I I resent the crap out of keeping receipts and can I deduct this? Can I deduct that? I have to keep this stuff for like seven years and all that. I mean, I I you know I moved recently, and one of the things that that was a real uh, a real albatross. I mean, something that I'm very annoyed about is that I had to carry around a, uh, I had to carry around this. One bin of papers that I have, which is just all my tax stuff from from recent years, you know, carrying it hoping, hoping again, you know, hoping as much as I can that, you know, I don't ever have to actually produce all this stuff because it means I'm going through the very uncomfortable process of a federal audit. Uh, But I have to carry all this crap around. It's just nonsense. It is just utter nonsense nonsense. And, you know, can you do like this? Can you do like that? I mean, where's the what's a judgment call? What's right? What's wrong? It's crazy. I think it was Rumsfeld some years ago who publicized that he would write a letter every year to the IRS saying, look, I did the best I can. I'm trying to pay what you guys want me or what what I'm supposed to pay. Not what you want, what what I'm supposed to pay. But this tax code you have is, is basically unintelligible. This tax code you have doesn't really make any sense. So, I did my best, just letting you know. If you want to audit me, go ahead and audit me. That was his attitude, but I'm trying here.
0: That was Donald Rumsfeld.
4: The guy had been in government for like 30, 40 years or whatever. The guy had been around forever. He like, had every major job except for president, it felt like. So he couldn't figure it out. And I'm sure he had an army of accountants looking at all this stuff, too. I mean, it's just nonsense. So simplification is great. I'm all for it. The fact that Congress hasn't already done it is kind of embarrassing. And a lower corporate tax rate, okay. That's a good thing, but now I'm I'm now I'm going to get into the who who benefits, uh, right? Uh, if I were in, a, you know, in, a, in, a, in an Italian mobster movie here, somebody would say, "Hey, qui bono," right? Who benefits? Um, who benefits? And corporations will benefit from you keep more money. This is nothing new. Tax cuts. Bush did tax cuts, and he did he did tax cuts uh, after nine eleven, right? So we know the Bush administration pushed for tax cuts. And now we're going to get into this discussion about well, what will happen if there are these cuts, and also we're going to have to offset this with spending. You know, it's really easy to sell people on you get to keep more of your money, but what is? Do you, it's a lot harder to sell people on. Sure, you can keep more of your money, but we're also going to give you less in government services, right? Or or, or we're going to raise the age for Medicare, or we're going to ch- do means testing for Social Security, or whatever it may be. Once you start to adjust that end of the equation, people get a little, whoa, oh, oh, hold, on, hold on a second. Oh, hold on, hold on there. Everything all of a sudden changes. Trump is saying that this is about, because corporate corporations, sure, lower tax rate, they'll have more money on the balance sheet. Okay, great. That's supposed to mean that they're more competitive vis-a-vis international competitors. Mm, okay. I can buy that. It's also supposed to mean they're going to pay their workers more and do more investment. Okay, I think that's probably true, but I I, I just want to take a skeptical POV on this. Um, Here's what Trump said about who's going to get to keep their
0: money and how it should
4: be bipartisan.
0: What could possibly be more bipartisan than allowing families to keep more of what they earn and creating an environment for real job and wage growth in the country that we love
4: okay an environment for job and wage growth um, by the way this is just the president making the pitch congress has to take action the president can sign whatever bill they pass sure but he can't do this on his own he, he, he he's not going to pull the obama I've got a pound on the phone I've got a pound on the phone i mean no trump is going to sign a bill that congress puts in front of him so right now he's out there, the president's out there trying to – look, he's trying to sell this deal to the American people of a different tax – or changes to the tax code. The tax code is a monstrosity of special interest carve-outs, social engineering, and it's not progressive. Taxing income is not pro- – if you're, if you're truly going to have a progressive taxation system – you would tax assets, not income, which, oh my gosh, people freak out about that. I'm like, yeah, all of a sudden you'd have all these Democrats who are like, sure, raise my taxes, see if I care. Well, yeah, that's because, you know, Thurston Howell III over there on the corner is making a half a million dollars a year on unearned income off of assets he already has. You know, the John Kerry's of the world are out there with a lot of money made by, you know, other men that they then married into. Uh, and John Kerry's out there. Uh, talking about how he wants, you know, higher taxes when he was running for president. I think that the year he ran for president, he made $7 million on uh, just from the investments that he had. So, yeah, 39 percent, 35 percent, 40 percent. He doesn't really care. Right? But for those of you who are building your own business, who are paying your own bills, who are trying to make your way, taxing your wages hurts. And are they really going to change enough of that in this tax code shift to make a difference? Are they really going to allow middle class families, people that are just doing their job, paying their bills, trying to support their families? Are they going to really leave them with more money or is this just going to be G.E., Goldman Sachs and some others have a little extra cash to pay out in bonuses at the end of the year? I'm not convinced yet. I'm not sure. We'll keep an eye on this. Buck Sexton here with you in the Freedom Hut team. You probably have heard of think tanks. A lot of people sitting around doing a lot of thinking, spending a little time being like, excuse me, sir, I'm uh, going to put together a bunch of research with the Excel spreadsheets, and then I'm going to send them to other scholars, and we're going to have a luncheon where we discuss the research and the Excel spreadsheets. And most think tanks are pretty boring, I know, because I have worked in a number of think tanks, and... I mean, yeah, people sit around doing a lot of thinking, but not a whole lot else. And it depends where you are, but some of them are more public education focused. Others are more policy focused and still others seem to be just holding tanks more than think tanks for future administration officials who are out of power because their political party got voted out of office. But we would like to think Or at least some people. I don't think this because I think that think tanks are overwhelmingly bought and paid for by certain donors, which is where I'm going to take this discussion in just a second. But the American people would like to think that think tanks are rooted in some integrity, that there is some level of uh, scholarly integrity that pushes the work more than anything else. And that's not true for the overwhelming majority of them. I mean, yeah, there are good people who work there. They're doing good work. But when push comes to shove, just like in politics, think tanks cave to donors. And there's this interesting piece in The New York Times, Google critic ousted from think tank funded by tech giant. And it talks about the New America Foundation which is, quote, an elite voice in policy debates on the American left. So this is a lefty think tank that got millions and millions of dollars from Google. Google gave them big chunks of cash. But after Google got fined $2.7 billion in June, uh, there was a scholar who worked for New America, who I know you're already like... No, trust me, this will get more interesting. Stay with me. Uh, there was a scholar from New America who was like, yeah, this is probably a good thing. Google, which is now owned by Alphabet, which Google's the same company that tossed James Damore out for writing in a forum discussion about an area, not just that he had some familiarity with, but in which he had studied for his PhD in biology at Harvard. They still booted him. Google's the same company. And Google has... More information on people all around the world than probably any other company on the planet. The only one that comes close is Facebook. Uh, But Google uh, gives all this money to the New America Foundation, or whatever this is called, which is a think tank. And it's run by this Anne-Marie Slaughter woman. And uh, this guy named something Lynn, I forget what what his full name is, doesn't really matter. Mr. Lynn, he is... Open about how he thinks this is a good thing. And this is his job. This is the area that he studies. This is something that he knows well. This is what he focuses on in this think tank. And all of a sudden, he comes out and says this is Barry Lynn is his name. He writes, he's working at this think tank, that he thinks the fine against Google is probably good. And he's one of the people that criticizes the overwhelming market dominance of Google. I mean, think about this. Google has so much control over what you see, over what ads get served, over what businesses you know about. I mean, Google's power right now in the marketplace is immense for all of us. Every single one of you listening right now, Google really matters. Whether you want it to or not, it does. I know some people are like, well, what about Yahoo? I mean, what was a lot? I don't know. I, I never used Yahoo. So I, I don't know what to tell you. And it's not like either of them sponsor me here. I'm just telling you what's going on. So uh, Google is uh, funding New America Foundation. This guy who works for New America or sending not entirely funding, them, but sending big checks. This guy criticized Google and then he gets called in to Ms. Slaughter's office a few days after this happens and is told that it is time to part ways. So this is quite obvious what's going on here. Right. Uh she said that he later on, by the way, uh Ms. Slaughter, who runs the think tank, New America Foundation, said that Mr. Lynn, this guy Barry Lynn, who was fired, this scholar there, was quote, imperiling the institution as a whole. Uh so and also that he was lacking in collegiality or something in dealing with colleagues. I mean, so they had some they they had to cover themselves because once people find out that these scholars are essentially doing research any area that touches on a company where they're getting big checks they can't be trusted that affects the trust that people have in all the rest of their research and products too so in the case of uh, what happened here with google they threw their weight around they got this guy and a whole bunch of others i believe who worked with him as well fired and uh, it's all about the funding you know, this is why universities have tenure in place. We think of tenure now as allowing for uh, lazy progressives to lecture the rest of the world about Marxism while they are essentially unfireable and getting paid uh, pretty well, especially at private universities, to do very little. But tenure was initially set up so that people wouldn't be in fear of their jobs being taken away if they had an unpopular thought or wrote an unpopular, which is amazing because now what you have is no one, will, everyone with tenure won't actually do what's unpopular. They won't actually do anything because it's become such an echo chamber on campus. Well, that echo chamber is very much in effect at Google as well, as we know from the James Daymore firing member. He was the guy who was who wrote at Google about how, you know, maybe women are a little different from men, and maybe that affects some of their choices, not all women, not every person, not every man, but, you know, maybe there's some differences here in the bio, in the uh, biology and the aggregate that we should explore if we're going to talk about how to bring more women into the workplace at Google in specific positions in which they can excel. Boom, he's fired. How, how dare you, sir? that was what they said they they booted him out and then people were like oh my gosh I just can't go to work like he's just the microaggressions were like macroaggressions it was so sad so they had to uh, get rid of him and they did and Google really embarrassed itself but they have so much money and they're so powerful that embarrass- it doesn't matter we're all still using Google right until somebody else comes along with something better we're all still using Google and, and until Ask Jeeves makes a return I remember that one it's like I'm gonna ask a I'm going to ask this guy, like ask the butler to ask Yahoo for me. It didn't really make sense. Uh, but Google uh, also has influence in places that you may not realize. And a good example of this, of course, is the New America Foundation, this think tank, which is already a progressive lefty think tank. But you'll see there there is no room for criticism of major donors at New America Foundation or at, at any of these think tanks, really. Uh, maybe some of them will stand up. I and mean, when when you have a uh, you know a a certain level of prestige in D.C., there may be as a think tank, you know, you may be able to stand up. I mean, I think the Council on Foreign Relations uh, would pro- because it has such a big budget and has so many donors, it would be tough to get them to fire somebody for what they write. It, not impossible, but tough. Uh, but for these progressive think tanks, it's like whoever's writing the checks is calling the shots. And the CFR is left of center, but it's it's not hard left. It's uh, I mean, I spent some time there as, a, as an intern. So I remember uh, not the worst internship ever that I'll tell you about later on this hour. Uh, but this is just an important reminder of the influence that some of these mega companies like Google have well beyond just w- what is obviously involved with Google, which is already which is already enormous. But there are private companies out there, and I know some of you are probably already thinking, "Oh, wait a second! Doesn't Jeff Bezos of Amazon own the Washington Post?" Yeah. Does anyone think that that's not an important connection? Does anyone think that Carlos Slim's uh, considerable investment in the New York Times to keep it alive uh, had had maybe something to do, or do you think it had nothing to do with the New York Times dramatically changing its line on illegal immigration? I just you, you look at where the money's coming. Always look. Always look. At where the money's coming from, it'll tell you a lot about the situation you face. It'll give you a lot of insight into the motivations of groups and individuals who will, until they're blue in the face, tell you that they're nonpartisan, uh, unbiased, just giving you the facts, just the straight perspective. But then when you start to see who's writing the checks, you go, mm, you don't you know you don't uh, go there you don't seem to be willing to offend that that institution now that's true for all of us right if you badmouth your employer you're going to get fired but this is different this isn't refusing to badmouth your employer this is a a lack of honesty that is enforced by enormous private companies like google that have tremendous influence and they do this quietly and behind the scenes They enforce a code of dishonesty, really, on some academics when it comes to talking about how powerful Google is and issues like James Damore's firing and whether Google should be subject to antitrust law, whether Google should be broken up as a matter of law. I mean, that's really what this all comes down to in the end. So uh, I just think it's important to keep and keep an eye on all this. It's important to understand the financial connections that exist for all of these entities that are playing uh, very large roles in our day-to-day lives, they have agendas. There are people that run these things. There are people with ideas and with their own biases, prejudices, predilections, proclivities, and they are going to find ways to try to influence not just the conversation, but to influence the way all of us think. So just remember that when we talk about think tanks. He's holding the line for America. Buck
3: Sexton is back.
4: Welcome back. Buck Sexton here with you now, team. I am often asked, how can you be a conservative when you grew up in Manhattan, when you're from New York City and you were surrounded with liberals? It would have been socially advantageous for you to be a liberal. You went to a liberal arts college that was to the left of Karl Marx in its politics. What happened to you?
0: What happened?
4: To borrow from the Hillary book. And the answer, uh, which could be a podcast unto itself, and maybe one day I'll I'll get into the journey of conservatism that I had or, or into conservatism, which started at a very young age. But I just remember being told things and knowing, well, that's not true. People would say things, and it was the conventional wisdom, and I'd think to myself, that's not accurate, or how do they know that? I'd like proof. I think that the basis of conservatism is honest questioning, and so I was very pleased to see uh, that there was at uh, Princeton University a statement put out by the James Madison Programme in American ideals and institutions, uh, signed by a whole bunch of professors, including Nicholas Christakis at Yale, most well-known perhaps for being screamed at by some of his students, for trying to get them to be more open-minded about children's costumes on Halloween, and also Robbie George, the uh, a professor of jurisprudence uh, at Princeton University, who was a uh, a kind of counterpart to my own thesis advisor Hadley Arkies at Amherst College who was really the lone conservative on my campus uh, and of course we found each other quickly and he was an intellectual shelter in the storm of Marxism at, at Amherst but here's what this James Madison program statement from professors it just was released uh, yesterday here's what it says Some thoughts and advice for our students and all students. We are scholars and teachers at Princeton, Harvard, and Yale who have some thoughts to share and advice to offer students who are headed off to colleges around the country. Our advice can be distilled to three words. Think for yourself. Now that might sound easy, but you will find, as you may have discovered already in high school, that thinking for yourself can be a challenge. It always demands self-discipline and these days can require courage. In today's climate, it's all too easy to allow your views and outlook to be shaped by dominant opinion on your campus or in the broader academic culture. The danger any student or faculty member faces today is falling into the vice of conformism, yielding to groupthink. At many colleges and universities, what John Stuart Mill called the tyranny of public opinion does more than merely discourage students from dissenting from prevailing views on moral, political, and other types of questions. It leads them to suppose that dominant views are so obviously correct that only a bigot or a crank could question them. Since no one wants to be or be thought of as a bigot or a crank, the easy, Lazy way to proceed is simply by falling into line with campus orthodoxies. Don't do that. Think for yourself. Thinking for yourself means questioning dominant ideas even when others insist on being treated as unquestionable. It means deciding what one believes not by conforming to fashionable opinions but by taking the trouble to learn and honestly consider the strongest arguments to be advanced on both or all sides of questions, including arguments for positions that others revile and want to stigmatize and against positions others seek to immunize from critical scrutiny. The love of truth and the desire to attain it should motivate you to think for yourself. The central point of a college education is to seek truth and to learn the skills and acquire the virtues necessary to be a lifelong truth seeker. Open-mindedness, critical thinking, and debate are essential to discovering the truth. Moreover, they are our best antidotes to bigotry. Merriam-Webster's first definition of the word bigot is a person who, quote, obstinately or intolerantly devoted to his or her own opinions and prejudices will not move from them. The only people who need fear, open-minded inquiry, and robust debate are the actual bigots, including those on campuses or in the broader society, who seek to protect the hegemony of their opinions by claiming that to question those opinions is itself bigotry. So don't be tyrannized by public opinion. Don't get trapped in an echo chamber. Whether you, in the end, reject or embrace a view Make sure you decide where you stand by critically assessing the arguments for the competing positions. Think for yourself. Good luck to you in college, and then you have a whole bunch of professors, well, about 10, signing this. But they're from Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Uh, A handful of professors who have not forgotten their central obligation to encourage students to ask questions and seek the truth, not to seek popularity, not to seek security, or the false security of consensus, but to understand why they believe, what they believe, what the other side believes, and ultimately what comes closest to if what is not absolutely true. That's supposed to be what college is all about. That's supposed to be what education is all about. These days, that has been not just forgotten, but actively suppressed on the left. And it is encouraging that there are at least a handful of academics left at some of these elite institutions signing this James Madison program statement. Simply put, think for yourself. Well, team, I have uh, enjoyed our session together, as I always do. Um, I would ask that you please go check out the latest on com. If, if you haven't seen that uh, Politico cartoon that they tweeted and then deleted, uh, we have it up on bucksexon.com. you got to see it to believe it. Uh, also, if you want to get some Team Buck gear, com slash store. Uh, you can get T-shirts, mugs, hats, and we're working on all kinds of stuff for you there in the store. Uh, tomorrow uh, we are going to do a segment on uh, International Overdose Awareness Day, uh, and it's a very important and very serious, very sobering subject. Uh, we have Nikki Six of Motley Crue scheduled to join, um, and we're going to be having a, a very um, serious conversation tomorrow about about. Overdose Awareness Day And his own battles with heroin And the addiction to heroin that he had um, But I, I wanted to take a moment Before we have that conversation tomorrow To just say uh, that it's it's pretty amazing To be here and be uh, on radio And to get to talk to some of the people Who when I was a kid growing up These were, I mean MTV in the If you grew up like I did in the 80s MTV was... Incredible. I mean, MTV was the visualization of everything that was cool and sexy and cutting edge of the culture. I mean, in the '80s, MTV was a was a real phenomenon, and music videos because you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have smartphones where you could carry video around with you all the time. You didn't have the internet. Uh, music videos were incredible, and you really got to know a song and its music video together. and In fact, I think you could argue that some of the biggest recording artists of that era were really only uh, possible or their careers were at least greatly assisted by uh, music videos and MTV. Madonna comes to mind. Uh, there are others as well for whom the video expression of the song that they had recorded was perhaps even more important than the song, the tune and the lyrics itself. Um, but Uh, Motley Crue I I thought was uh, such a such a cool rock band and I I went through a a phase when I was younger where I definitely listened to a fair amount of I guess what we call hair metal Um, and then later on although I'm really more of a 90s uh, nostalgia guy because that's when I was a teenager and bands like uh, Soundgarden, Chris Cornell rest in peace, uh, Stone Temple Pilots those were the bands that really resonated with me. But before that, I definitely watched a lot of Motley Crue and Poison and Aerosmith and these these different uh, hair bands up on, up on stage. And I, I will tell you that I, I had the worst internship of my entire life. And I had some crappy internships. I really did. I mean, I had some internships where I was just doing, first of all, I was working for free, which I am very opposed to, except in special circumstances, don't work for free, work for a paycheck, work for money, your your labor has value. Uh, when you're younger, don't get drawn into this, oh, you know, you're gonna, unless there's a clear pathway to a paid position, and, you know, it's apparent to you, if it's just a resume builder, a job where you have to show up, you get a paycheck, and if you don't do your job, you get fired, is a resume builder. That is the uh, kind of economic character building that should be much more celebrated among younger people, among my generation, uh, than it was. And and among the current generation, uh, instead of all of this basement dwelling, video game playing, Instagramming, Skyping, and all, well, Skyping, I sound like I'm really out of touch, but Instagramming constantly, uh, Snapchat, people should be showing up, Doing a job, getting a paycheck. Uh, I'm a f- I'm a firm believer in a massive overhaul of the education system. Well, in a lot of ways, I have some pretty radical ideas when it comes to education. I think that before you go to college after high school, mandatory two years, mandatory two years to do something, serve your country. Uh, you know, if you serve serve in the military, serve uh, in the well, work in the private sector, uh, volunteer somewhere. Just do. Something where you have to function as an adult for two years to, because to go from high school to a four-year-long party in undergrad is not, I think, the best way at all. I really don't. I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in, in a double, I guess it would be a double gap year or a two-year gap between high school and college. But back to the worst internship ever because uh, I thought all this music stuff was, everyone does, and that was, it was a much more, I think, a part of, Uh, our day-to-day lives uh, in a way where you were interacting with music and it was special because you know you had to have either a radio or a cd player or a cassette player now I mean I I carry around all this different music in my pocket and it's just changed it's just different now Uh, but you know if you had like a cd by a band you loved you thought that was a really valuable object and you know HMV I remember going into the HMV store and that was this whole experience and you're just wandering around instead of being at at an actual library of books which would have probably been a better thing you're looking at a library of CDs and uh, it was just this whole music culture and rock and roll and hip-hop and Uh, Country too Country's become actually much more commercial I think in the last 15 years or so Than it was when I was younger Uh, Country is really I think country and hip hop Are really the two most popular forms of music in the country Um, But the internship that I had Was at a music publishing company Many years ago And it was one of these things Where it was a a friend of a friend of the family Or whatever uh, And they offered to let me And it was only I think I was there for a month and then I went off and was a, a camp counselor, so it was a really short period of time. But I mean, it was one of the longest months of my life. I mean, it was it was a beautiful summer. I'm here in New York City, and I'm at some music publishing firm. Which you go in there, and their offices are so cool, and they have giant you know billboards on the wall with. Uh, you know, Motley Crue posters and Aerosmith and Usher and you know all this different stuff all these different people actually Usher that might have been before but you know all these different big music acts and you know, Rolling Stone well no that's a- too early I don't know whatever whoever was big in like the year 2000 because I think that's when I did this uh, so it was just maybe my freshman year of college either right before or right after and I was sitting there and I just got exposed a little bit. They didn't have much for me to do. So I was doing the absolute grunt work exposed to the publishing side of the business. And it's just a lot of, uh, there were a lot of talking about rights and lawsuits and rights and, you know, licensing music out. And I was like, you know, where's like, when do I get to go and party with you know, like Biggie or something, or like when do I get to? Well, actually, Biggie passed away by then, but you know what I mean. And, you know, when do I get to see like some of these great music acts? Nope, none of that. Uh, none of that. It was just me sitting at a desk doing basic admin work. And I will say this, and this always stuck with me the amount of unsolicited and, and really. Uh, intricate and and really involved submissions. This was the first time I had ever been exposed to the creative uh, side of, of commercial activity, right, where people are trying to break into the creative arts. The submissions, they had me. I was an intern for a month. I was the person that was going through piles and piles of CDs and homemade music videos and and they, and they basically said If you see something that is absolutely amazing We might have th- You know, the guy who's like your immediate supervisor Take a look at it So even if I saw something totally amazing It was about five levels of review Before anyone seeing it that anyone cared about But people really had sent in all this And I know they, weren't, they, they were sending it to a lot of places And it was almost like a mass mailing But it was You know, some of the bands were really Were, were good um, Not all that memorable, but were good it's also, this was before American Idol, and to see people who think that they're going to have a career as a professional musician, and they're really not, um, they're really, really not. I mean, I was like 19 years old, and and I knew, I mean, yeah, no, wasn't going to happen. To see that was also eye-opening, and it was really my first exposure to what a, a brutal business Being on the creative side Is I mean it, you just have People fighting for every scrap It's not fair and On the business side of the Creative side it just Wasn't for me man I was not The music publishing company I interned At I'm telling you it was the, the, When I got to go out and get a sandwich For everybody in the office and, and do my runs I, I was like I was uh, Coming up for air after being in the in the You know the the murkiest grossest lake or something. It just was, I couldn't wait to get the heck out of there. So it was important to learn what I didn't want to do. Uh, With that team, I will uh, say that we're going to close up shop here in the Freedom Hut for the day. But of course, tomorrow we will be back in action as always. Uh, Buck Sexton on Twitter. If you're not already following me, please do. And the single biggest favor, single biggest solid you can do on this show. Well, there are two of them. Uh, Go check out our sponsors when I tell you about websites, whether it's and Branch, Black Rifle, any of them. Please go check out our sponsors. They've got fantastic products, and they're great companies run by wonderful people. Uh, And tell somebody about this show, somebody who doesn't know, who will listen to you, or at least will uh, hear an opinion from you. And until tomorrow, my friends, shields high.